0: reading from 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 17 and this is from the common english bible When the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies the king said to the prophet Nathan Look I'm living in a cedar palace but God's chest is housed in a tent Nathan said to the king Go ahead and do whatever you are thinking because the Lord is with you. But that very night, the Lord's word came to Nathan Go to my servant David and tell him, This is what the Lord says. You're not the one to build the temple for me to live in. In fact, I haven't lived in a temple from the day I brought Israel out of Egypt until now. Instead, I have been traveling around in a tent and in a dwelling. Throughout my traveling around with the Israelites, did I ever ask any of Israel's tribal leaders I appointed to shepherd my people? Why haven't you built me a cedar temple? So then, say this to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heavenly forces says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be leader over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've eliminated all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest people on earth. I'm going to provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and no longer be disturbed. Cruel people will no longer trouble them as they had been earlier when I appointed leaders over my people Israel, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a dynasty for you. When the time comes for you to die and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your descendant, one of your very own children, to succeed you. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a temple for my name and I will establish his royal throne there forever. I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. Whenever he does wrong, I'll discipline him with a human rod, with blows from human beings. But I will never take my faithful love away from him like I took it away from Saul, whom I set aside in favor of you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will be secured forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all of these words and this entire vision to David. Here ends this reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Imagine it's an election year. Okay, I know that's not a real stretch. But imagine we're on the other side of the election, an idea I bet most of us can get behind right about now. And on the other side of election, it's inauguration day. And just as the outgoing president is coming up to the platform for the inauguration ceremony, the newly elected president jumps up on top of the podium in nothing but a very thin, see-through, white linen towel wrapped around their waist that isn't really fully covering up everything. You know what I'm saying? And the new president, in nothing but this see-through towel and a smile, starts dancing wildly to celebrate their own fresh victory. To make matters worse, Before the incoming president sits down, that wild, nearly naked dancer turns around and points at the outgoing president's daughter and tells her that she will never give birth to children and it's all a curse from God and that God is solely responsible not only for this president's victory, but also for her sterility and for all this stuff along with choosing the new president over the old president. That's pretty much what just happened a chapter before we picked up today's story, and in case the story is new new to you today, David was the new basically naked dancing king, and Saul and his family were the ones on their way out. Do you see why I say this story can be a bit messy and complicated? Somewhere along the way, David went, in just a few moments, according to how the narrator in Samuel tells the story, from a humble, reluctant shepherd boy to a king that was a little too big for his britches. Well, at least he had them back on for Chapter 7, where we began today. After just getting settled into his swanky, brand new cedar palace, apparently... King David has decided it's time to prove that he has an eye for tackling the problems others apparently haven't even noticed yet, and so he offers his rookie king's will and desire to build God a proper temple, you know, something really God-worthy. After all, if he as king lives in a very swanky cedar palace, why should God be toted around in a Basically, portable box forever, a mobile home of sorts, constructed from curtains. It all sounds noble, right? Hmm, or was David trying a little too hard to impress and legitimize himself as the new king? Hmm. maybe a little bit of both? We human beings are complicated like that, aren't we? Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I barely can keep track of exactly what my own motives are, and so pinpointing someone else's intentions or motives that happened thousands of years ago is near, near to impossible for me. Nevertheless, God politely declines in our story, or more accurately, delays the building of any such temple and says, well, David, your son can build it, but it's not your job and it's not the right time. And then God does something really, really beautiful, or at least we are told this is how it happened. Instead of David establishing a house for God, God establishes the house of David. And God does so unconditionally with no ifs or buts, to establish David and his heirs and everyone in his lineage as a dynasty. And God says in our story, there is literally nothing any of David or his heirs could ever do that would negate this unconditional blessing. Can I be completely honest with you? I'm very suspicious About the unconditional nature of this whole arrangement. I'm not too proud of my suspicions. Maybe I'm just another jaded, middle-aged minister. But when something sounds too good to be true, well, you know what they say. It usually is. They say that history gets written by the victors. And who is the victor in this story? Right the new king. And it just seems so very pro-king David. And so anti-king Saul. All of it. Maybe I just have read too much. Maybe I'm getting confused. Because with literally every other single leader the people of Israel have had up to this point in their history, God's promises were always quite conditional. You know what I mean. God would say, hey, you do this, and I'll bless you. You remember me, and I'll remember you. Literally every single time, with Adam, Abraham, Moses, you name it. But the way this story here in Second Samuel 7 gets narrated, it sounds an awful lot like God wrote a blank check to David. And not only David, but everyone in David's lineage who would come after him. So please forgive me, a potentially jaded middle-aged minister, for being a little suspicious about the way this story gets told. I mean, David was a politician, you know? Unconditional blessing and loyalty from God? Who gets that kind of promise their first full week at the new job? If we could just separate out the fact, maybe, that David was a politician, maybe I could be a little happier for him and, and get behind this kind of unheard of deal that was offered to him. It just all seems a bit too convenient at first look. A king gets a blank check from God for unlimited favor? And not just for himself, but for all of his descendants to follow? We know how things really work in our world, at least the world we live in, don't we? I mean, we've learned to never trust a religious leader who tells you how to vote, and to never trust a political leader who tells you how to practice your religion. I mean, it's the American way, right? The separation of church and state. And we know just how dirty it feels when someone like Pat Robertson comes on TV and tells the world that God has told him exactly who's going to win the election and why. And we know all too well the feelings that come over us. As people of faith, when our politicians are blatantly pandering to get our votes, while they're also paying off porn stars to stay quiet about their private escapades, or lying about their sexual misconduct with an intern while on the witness stand in a court of law, or... When these politicians say they support peace with their mouth and yet have been out secretly allowing our government to sell deadly weapons to our enemies, we could go on for days here as to the reasons that we are skeptical of politicians. But should we just completely dismiss these outlandish-seeming, unconditional promises God made in this story to David because David was a politician? If we just dismiss these unconditional promises because they sound too good to be true, are we also throwing out something potentially really important and maybe even life-changing? I realize that this is probably where I'm supposed to just answer the burning question I've spent nearly 10 minutes asking and building up to, but what do you think? What if unconditional grace really is a thing? Not just for King David and his family, not just for special chosen ones like David, or in our own tradition like Jesus, but what if unconditional grace really is a thing for all of us? What if God is as interested in what's really important and as pressing to us as God was in what was really important and pressing to King David during his time. What if there really is nothing any of us could ever do that could cause us to fall out of favor with God? Hmm. The conditional promises and blessings, now we can wrap our minds around those, but this unconditional stuff, these Blank checks from God to us and other human beings? It's foreign to our entire frame of reference. I mean, we live in a country where many people want to drug test poor people before deciding if they're worthy enough to get food or shelter or clothing assistance. We've been conditioned to believe that we must all do something before we can get something. But this is not the case, is it, in God's universe of unconditional grace." Is it? I mean, by definition, grace is a gift of God. We receive without earning it or deserving it before we can do something, before we can ask, and there are zero strings attached. I mean, according to that definition, we can't earn grace. We can't coerce it, manage it, transact it. Neither can we wait for the stars to align and for every shred of politics to be completely separated from our own surroundings so that we can have uh, a true experience of pure religion in that magical moment as God's grace descends upon us, separate in time and space from anything that might taint our experience. Or conversely, neither can we afford to wait until our politics is 100% free from any religious over- or undertones before getting involved to work for change in this world. Oh, God's grace, now that I think of it, God's unmerited, unexpected, unearned, unconditional acceptance of who we really are, has always specialized in meeting us right in the middle of the messes we human beings make. This radically free grace met David in a field where he was an unheard of, no-name shepherd boy and called him to lead the nation of Israel. Now, was it a 100% innocent, angelic ascension to the throne? Of course not. Need I remind you of the inaugural table dancing or the moral failures he performed or experienced along the way as king? God's unconditional grace, however, gives us new eyes through which to see ourselves as well as our neighbors, maybe even our politician neighbors. God's unconditional grace is like an ointment that brings healing to the hardened, jaded places in our lives, and also, in particular, in our holy imaginations with how we imagine ourselves and the rest of our neighbors. We have forgotten or perhaps denied these jaded, crusty places even existed. These are the places that say to our spirit when we're low, you don't deserve this you need to prove yourself first. Or perhaps more often, these voices say to us, that person doesn't deserve the kind of grace you're thinking about offering them. You know how they live their lives. You know who they plan to vote for. You know their type. Now, this is not a call to avoid or abandon the responsibility that we have as people of faith to work for change and to stay involved because of our faith and conscience within the political system of our own society to continue working to shape a more peaceful and just world for all. No, this is not a call to deny that we are all very much accountable for our own actions and inactions or to pretend that conditional promises are also not a part of our biblical faith tradition. There are days when we need to hold ourselves or one another firmly accountable. You know, those conditions. There are days when we need to discern who is taking advantage of the system, who is harming the people on the margins, and then stand up and demand justice. But, dear ones, one cannot shout from the mountaintops demanding justice for others for very long without having also accepted the whisper of God's unconditional grace and acceptance deep in the valley, whispering personally into one's own ear. Theologian Paul Tillich once described that sacred moment when he said, Sometimes, at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice says, you are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience, as Tillich said, grace. After such an experience, he concluded, we may not be better than before, and we may not believe more than before, but everything is transformed. In the name of the one whose unconditional grace is continually transforming the world and all those who live in it, to offer this same grace to one another, yea and verily, every single other, we pray. Amen.